I just realized that the 90s was the greatest era of basketball. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome, everybody, to the premiere of the 90s Basketball Show. My name is Brian Swain, and I'm thrilled to bring you this newest podcast as part of the Basketball Show family. Well, I don't know if you're here on purpose or if you're just randomly checking out podcasts or if you clicked on the link by accident, but regardless of how you arrived, you're probably wondering, what exactly is this that I'm listening to? Well, this is what happens when you take a kid, that'd be me, who fell in love with basketball in the 90s and has been stuck in that decade ever since, and then you give him a chance to talk about his favorite things, which is, yes, you guessed it, basketball and the 1990s. Now granted, there wasn't such a thing as podcasts at that time, but the 90s was an incredibly significant time for the sport of basketball, and it's an era that's gained new appreciation in recent times through documentaries like The Last Dance. Now in the 1990s, Michael Jordan was arguably the most famous athlete in the world, the Chicago Bulls were the most famous team in the world, and the game's popularity spread across the globe, while having an undeniable impact in pop culture that was felt everywhere from fashion to music and movies. The style of play in the 90s was something kind of between the no-holds-barred, anything-goes-battles-in-the-paint that you saw in the 1980s, crossed with a perimeter-oriented game that favors athleticism, which has come to define basketball in the years that have followed. It was an incredible time, a fascinating time, and that's exactly what I hope to reflect with this podcast, looking not only at the game and its players, but also everything outside of and around the sport of basketball, too. So, with that out of the way, let's say we get this thing started. The Houston Rockets It was 26 years ago, June 22, 1994 to be precise, that the Houston Rockets defeated the New York Knicks in Game 7 of the NBA Finals. That's a night our guest here won't soon forget. Matt Bullard played 11 seasons in the NBA, and he was a part of that 94 Rockets championship team. Uh, now he's one of the best analysts around, providing color commentary on Rockets TV broadcasts, and I'm excited to welcome him to the show. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, considering, uh, you know, all the craziness that's going on in the world. Uh, I'm doing fairly well, and the fact that we can uh, talk about some NBA basketball makes things a lot better. Well, let's hop right into it and go back to what was maybe a bit more normal, but certainly a very exciting time for you with the 1994 championship. And uh, your Houston Rockets was the first team to kind of rise to the top after Michael Jordan retired the first time following the, the Bulls' uh, first repeat from, or first three-peat, I should say, from uh, 1991-92-93 championships. And Matt, I saw an interview recently with Shaquille O'Neal that I thought was really interesting and uh, it kind of gave an insight into where the league was at that point in time. And he was saying that when Jordan retired, they got the sense that now this is wide open. You know, the Bulls had dominated the league for so long and until that point. But now the, the championship was really anybody's for the taking. It was almost like, uh, you know, every everybody's in first place. Like they say in baseball, everybody's in first place on opening day. And, and heading into that season, there was a real sense that anyone could win this championship. What was your mindset like heading into that season? Uh, well, as, as a Houston Rocket, we actually had a different perspective than what Shaq was talking about. We, we were not afraid of the Chicago Bulls. We did not feel like they were keeping us from winning championships. In fact, during the Chicago Bulls' first three three-peat, the Houston Rockets were 5-1 and one against the Chicago Bulls in the regular season. And we had their number. We had... Keem Olajuwon inside, and they were trying to guard him with Bill Cartwright. And we had Vernon Maxwell and uh, Mario Elie who could guard Michael Jordan. You know, obviously, you're not going to shut Michael Jordan down, but those two guys, uh, Vernon and Mario, were very, uh, very tough guys. You know, they didn't back down from anybody, and, and they certainly would make it difficult on Michael Jordan every time we played them. So 
we didn't feel like the Chicago Bulls were were the ones who were keeping us from winning championships. We felt like it was actually the Seattle Supersonics that had our number. And I'll go back uh, the playoffs in 1993. We played the Seattle Supersonics, and the series went to seven games. It was in Seattle. It was a double overtime game. We lost by uh, on a last second shot. Uh, to the to the Seattle Supersonics, and I believe had we beaten the Sonics in that second round series, that we would have beaten the Bulls in '93 and not let them threepeat. And in fact, I, I believe the Rockets would have been uh, a threepeat in '93, '94, '95. So it was really the Seattle Supersonics that had our number, and that was George Carl was the coach, and they had Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and uh, Sam Perkins and Detlef Shrimp and Nate McMillan. They had a really good team, and the way they defended us uh, gave us trouble. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, you look back to the 90s of all the great teams that were, that were playing in, in that time. And, you know, the Utah Jazz were a great team as well, and, and uh, you know, obviously the Bulls and everything. So some great basketball being played in the 90s. It's interesting you mentioned you were 5-1 and one against the Bulls in that, over that three-year stretch. Why do you think you matched up so well against them? Well, I think, you know, obviously they had, uh, you know, their team was Michael Jordan and, and Scottie Pippen, and they had a, a really good uh, set of guys around Jordan. But I think our team matched up well with them. And, and, and they, the Bulls did not match up well with us because we had, we had the dream inside. And, and they had, you know, Luke Longley and Bill Cartwright and, and uh, Bill Winnington. Those types of guys were solid NBA players, but certainly not to the same caliber as the dream. And, and so the way we were set up, and, and give Rudy Tomjanovich a lot of credit, and, and Rudy finally is in the Hall of Fame now, which is well-deserved, but Rudy was uh, on the cutting edge of using the three-point shot to create space around Akeem Olajuwon. Of course, the dream was deadly in the post, and he had the dream shake, and he was unstoppable. So you had to double-team him or even triple-team him at times, and Rudy Tomjanovich used uh, some great shooting, Kenny Smith and Vernon Maxwell and Mario Elliott, and then big guys like myself, and Robert Ory to space the floor to give the dream more room to operate in the pain. And so Rudy was definitely ahead of his time by using the three-point shot as a weapon offensively. And if you go back and you look at the numbers of the, of the Rockets in uh, 94 and 95, we led the league in three-point attempts way back in the day. And so, uh, you know, it was Rudy that I, I remember when Rudy was talking about this, you know, t telling us, that, you know, the players, he said, hey, look, all you have to do is shoot 33% from the three-point line, and that's equivalent to shooting 50% from two. So if you have the open three, I want you to shoot it. And that was, uh, you know, in my career as a big man, six foot ten, he was really the first coach that I had that told me, hey, look, I want you to shoot the three-point shot. That was definitely a team that was ahead of its time in, in terms of uh, how it uh, adapted the, the use of the three-pointer. And that's something I certainly want to get into a bit later. When you mentioned um, that the Sonics, of course, who eliminated you in the Game 7 double overtime in 1993 was, was probably your biggest obstacle. When you guys broke through and won in 94, you didn't have to face the Sonics because, of course, a lot of people might remember that was the year they were famously upset by the, the Denver Nuggets. Nuggets and went on to lose to the Jazz and then you guys beat the Jazz. How do you think that team, what, what would have a, a, a series, a seven-game series between the, the, the Sonics and Rockets look like in 1994 if it had come to fruition? Well, I remember Dikembe Mutombo, who was playing for the Denver Nuggets at the time, laying on the floor after the Nuggets had knocked off the number one seeded Seattle Supersonics in the first round. And I remember Dikembe laying on the floor, holding the basketball, you know, tears streaming down his face. He was so happy that, uh, that they had knocked off the Sonics. And I remember thinking, wow, now the door is open for us. We won't have to go through the Sonics to get to the finals. You know, that being said, the Utah Jazz were still a terrific team with Stockton and Malone and, and the Phoenix Suns with, with Charles Barkley were, uh, were, you know, with a great team and Kevin Johnson on that team as well and Dan Marley. So, you know, the Western Conference was no joke. And if you made it out of the West, it was, uh, it was a gauntlet that you had to run through to get, to get out of the Western Conference. And so, you know, a lot of times when you look back on, on successes in your life, and in this particular case, successes with the Houston Rockets, you can see sort of the other things that went on uh, that you really didn't have any control of that, that had to happen in order for everything to fall into place. And, and uh, I'll never forget Dikembe Mutombo laying on the ground holding that ball, and, and, and uh, he opened the door for us. 
Were, were you guys disappointed at that point in time? I mean, I think a lot of people heading into that playoffs, uh, I believe you, you guys were the number two seed. Of course, the Sonics were, were number one. And looking ahead, that that could have been, uh, you know, an all-time matchup, uh, one of the all-time classic matchups for the Western Conference Finals. Uh, but at the same time, like you say, that opened the door for you. What, what do you remember? How do you remember feeling at the time when you saw that? Well, yeah, I remember that, uh, you know, we really, we really did not like playing against the Seattle Supersonics. The way they defended us, they would double team Akeem in the post. And then when he kicked it out, they had, a, they had the right personnel where they could what we call full rotate. So they would have their, their foreman, who was Detlef Shrimp or Sam Perkins or those types of guys, could then rotate out and pick up our corner three-point shooter. So the offense that we had set up, to try to generate open threes, their defense was set up to stop that. And so we really struggled to play against the Seattle Supersonics. And, and, uh, and, and I remember feeling relief that we did not have to go through them in 94. And, uh, and perhaps that saved a little bit, uh, you know, saved our legs a little bit to not have to go through the Supersonics so that when we finally got to the finals against the Knicks and it went seven games, we still had enough left in the tank to win it in game seven. Well, Matt, how was it that this team evolved into a championship contender? Because really, you see so often in sports where teams have to kind of go through growing pains. They have to maybe take some tough losses in the playoffs and, and they, they evolve from that and use that experience to, to finally break through. This was a team that until 1993 hadn't won a playoff series since 1987. Uh, you guys had even missed the playoffs in 1992, so there was not a ton of depth of playoffs experience on this team and, and yet here you were uh, in the 1994 season 93-94 season I should say considered a, a real championship contender did you guys have that championship mindset even though you hadn't gone through some of those tough times that, that other teams do in order to get to that point no I don't think we had the championship mindset I think we you know uh, when Rudy Tomjanovich took over as head coach in 91 for the Rockets I think that was really what kind of got us started uh, on the path to becoming champions, but we never felt like we were champions. We felt like we were building something. And, and another thing that I think was important for the Rockets is the early 90s team, we, uh, we were kept together. We were allowed to grow together, to grow our chemistry together. We weren't adding a bunch of new pieces. We weren't trading a bunch of guys. We were a pretty solid core with Akeem and Otis Thorpe and Kenny Smith and Vernon Maxwell. And then we added Robert Ori as a draft pick, and we got Mario Eli as a free agent. And so I, I feel like we were sort of developing a chemistry under Rudy Tomjanovich. And Rudy uh, is, one of, is the best coach I've ever played for. And one of the reasons why I think he was so good is because he was such a good player himself. And he, underst he understands, you know, what it's like to be a player in the NBA. So when we were playing for Rudy, it was like he was the head coach, but he was also one of us. And we, it wasn't like we were – you know, bumping heads with him or, or button heads with him or, or you know, he was uh, berating us. It was none of that stuff. It was more like he was on our side and we really wanted to succeed for him. And if we didn't succeed, we felt like we let him down. So it was that sort of chemistry that we built over the early 90s and, and that uh, Seattle Supersonics loss in the second round, the pain that we felt from that loss in 93 uh, stuck with us all summer. Uh, I, I remember just the – the plane ride back from that Seattle loss was the quietest plane ride I've ever been on. Everybody was devastated. That feeling stayed with us through the whole summer. And when we came back in, in October of 93, we had that fire that had been burning all summer long. And we ripped off 15 in a row to start the 93-94 season. And we ended up 22-1 uh, and one, uh, it was our start to that season. And I feel like that pain that we had, that we had felt from the Seattle series was what drove us. And I actually recently talked with Rudy about that. And he said, he says, Bull, he goes, you're, you know, you're right. He goes, the, the, nothing in life, uh, that you, nothing good in life comes easy. Everything that you get that's good in life, you have to go through some pain in order to, in order to get that. And so we went through that pain with the Seattle Supersonics. That's what really solidified our chemistry. And in 93, 94, there was no stopping us. Well, that speaks volumes if the team felt that way coming out of the loss to Seattle, because then obviously if, if, if you're that disappointed at that point in time, you, you, at that point you must have somewhere along the lines you had taken on the mindset that we are a championship team, that we, should, we shouldn't be flying home now. We should be flying to Phoenix to, to play the Suns in the, uh, in the Western Finals. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's exactly the feeling that we had. We felt like we, you know, if we had we gotten past that Seattle series, we would have won it in '93. That's that's the way we felt, and we were we were devastated by losing that that series. And and so it really wasn't, uh, you know, the lack of playoff experience really wasn't what was holding us back. It was just a lot of really good teams that we had to play. But I feel like our chemistry and our mindset was in the right place, and and it was really trickled down from our leader and Rudy T. And of course, Akeem was also very, very uh, competitive. And Akeem had really made a big change in his life. He had he had become very disciplined and very uh, motivated, and he was he was really locked in on wanting to be the best. And he, you know, the way Akeem led our team wasn't he didn't speak a lot, but he led by example. He was always the hardest uh, guy in practice. He always practiced the hardest. He always was uh, you know working out the hardest and so we all kind of got in line behind Akeem our best player and follow his, followed his example and uh, you know those are, those are the way great teams have to be built you have to have great coaching you have to have great leadership you have to have enough talent to win for sure but then you also have the chemistry where everybody feels like they're on the same side everybody's pulling on the rope in the same direction and uh, even when we had uh, you know, in the 94 playoffs, remember in the second round, we went to, we, we got down 0-2 to the Phoenix Suns and uh, and the newspapers in Houston had called us Choke City because we'd blown two 20-point leads in those first two games. And even that did not distract us. Uh, we came back and we ended up beating the Phoenix Suns in that series. And, and that's when Clutch City was born. And so that just shows you the mindset that we had that we were not going to let anything hold us back. You mentioned the chemistry. You used that word a few times. I think that's so key. Obviously, that was a major, major component in what made this Rockets team a success. Because another thing that makes you guys so unique and stand out when you look back at the history of championship teams, it's very rare, Matt, that you find a championship team that doesn't have at least two All-Stars. Uh, you guys had the one All-Star that year, Akeem Olajuwon, um, and, and that was it. Uh, you know, I mean, I think uh, Otis Thorpe might have been an all-star, I think, once or twice previously in his career. I think Sam Cassell later on in his career, of course, Sam Cassell was just a rookie that season, would, would be, develop into an all-star level player. But this was this was basically a, a one-star team. And it's so rare that you see that uh, when you look back at the, the history of championship teams in the NBA. Um, did would, would it be fair to say that the, I, that's, that's an example of how chemistry – Almost, um, it's it's the sum the, 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 the sum is greater than the parts, really. Yeah, I think you're onto something really important right there. And that uh, you know, nowadays you feel like in the NBA, if you're going to win a championship, you have to have two or three All Stars. You know, the current Rockets have, have James Harden and Russell Westbrook. You know, and and, uh, and and but going back to the to the mid '90s, we had you know we had the dream, and everybody else played their roles perfectly. And and, and you know, again, give credit to Rudy T for being able to put us in the right places. To to really, I always felt like Rudy was able to maximize my strengths and minimize my weaknesses. And he did that for everybody. And, and so it is unusual if you think back now that the Rockets only had uh, one all-star in that 94 championship series. But then if you go to the next season in 95, the Rockets had traded for Clyde Drexler. So the Rockets had two all-stars in 95. And that's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, sort of what we're seeing now in the modern NBA, that you have to have at least two. Uh, all-stars but I think you know we had guys like Kenny Smith and Vernon Maxwell who were and Otis Thorpe who were maybe not quite all-stars but they felt like they were like in their minds they felt like they were snubbed uh, you know that they weren't all-stars and so they used that chip on their shoulder to really motivate them to play at an all-star level when it really got down to the to the playoffs. Of course, yeah, that in the, the next year they did acquire Clyde Drexler. So it shows that even this team with all the great chemistry that it had eventually had to add a second all-star to be able to defend the title. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a, you know the, the NBA is uh, best, you know, the best talent on the planet, the most competitive guys on the planet, the best athletes. And, and uh, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of talent to win, to win in this league. That's another thing that Rudy T used to talk about all the time. Is he would say, guys, it's really hard to win a basketball game in the NBA. Just to win one game, it's really hard. And, uh, and uh, the Rockets, we had had our backs against the wall several times, and we've been able to, to fight back and win games, you know, win, win games that were, uh, 
elimination games and, and to, find, to have that, that success and to, and to come back from the, being down 0-2 against the Phoenix Suns and, and end up winning that series. Those are all the little uh, confidence-building type things that really helped us along the way. You've been mentioning some of your teammates there, and it really was quite a interesting and re really it was a deep roster. It was an interesting mix of players. Uh, I want to get some of your memories on some of the, some of the players that you, you played with, um, Matt, especially on that team. Your reflections on them, of course. I think I think I'll start with Kenny Smith because, of course, Kenny Smith has become you know one of the one of the voices of the NBA really from with, with his role with the NBA on TNT and is no certainly known to this generation uh, as, as a broadcaster. What was Kenny Smith like as a player and a teammate? Well, you have to remember that Kenny Smith uh, was in the three point contest and also in the dunk contest. Uh, one of the very few players in. NBA history to have been in both of those contests in, in the All-Star game. So he was a very talented player, even though he was a, a very slightly built point guard, you know, and that was back in the era when the game was super physical. He was very athletic. He was very fast. He could really run and jump. Uh, and, and also he had a, a even though his, his uh, jump shot, even though it wasn't uh, technically sound, it, it was a, it was a, it was an accurate jump shot. And so, you know, Kenny was the type of guy who, we could get out and, uh, and, and run in the fast break with him, and he really pushed us. And, uh, and he was a fun guy to be around. But I think, you know, looking, looking at Kenny Smith now, I think he's actually become a better broadcaster than he was player. And he was a really good player in his, in his time. But, but I'll also uh, add in, when we're talking about Kenny, uh, we have to talk about Sam Cassell. Sam Cassell was a rookie in 1994, and we would not have won the championship without Sam Cassell. Uh, backing up Kenny Smith because you know Kenny was a very talented player, but he he wasn't a very powerful player. And when we get, ended up getting into the finals with the New York Knicks, playing against Derek Harper and and uh, and some very physical players on the New York Knicks, I mean very physical players, uh, Kenny Smith really actually had a hard time bringing the ball up the floor against Derek Harper's hand check. So so Sam Cassell, as a rookie coming in and being able to bring the ball up the floor and initiate our offense was the piece that we really needed to be able to get past the Knicks. Those playoffs certainly were, and I, I recall them being a coming out party for Sam Cassell. Yes, and, and that was, you know, in Sam's rookie year, he won, a, he won his first championship. And then in his second year, he won his second championship. And I remember uh, hearing Sam later on in his career saying, you know, I, I won championships my first two years, and I thought it was easy, but it's not. And so – you know, Sam coming in as a, as a rookie from Florida State, really not a very heralded player, but he had that chip on his shoulder. He knew he was good. He was, he was very good. Uh, he was very underrated. But that sort of is what drove him to, uh, to really to not be afraid of the, of the big moment. In fact, I think when he was a rookie in 94 in those finals, I think he, he probably didn't even know what he didn't know. You know, he didn't realize uh, how hard it was supposed to be. He didn't realize how much pressure there really was supposed to be on his shoulders when he was out there playing as, as a rookie, and maybe that helped him perform a little bit better. Uh, another member of that backcourt, one of the most intriguing players on the roster, would have to be Vernon Maxwell, a.k.a. Mad Max. How accurate is the nickname Mad Max? It's completely accurate. And, uh, and, and Vernon is one of my best buddies, man. Vernon and I, we've kept in touch. Uh, we're really tight. Uh, I love that dude, man. And, and he's, he's the type of guy that you love to have on your team. You know, like he is never going to back down. He's never going to quit. He's going he's gonna to be so competitive that you can always count on him. And, uh, and, and, and yet, you know, sometimes he could go over the line, you know, and that's the thing about being in a competitive league is you have to be able to play right up to that line every single night. And sometimes Vernon would go over the line. Sometimes Vernon would go into the stands and, you know, and, and confront uh, fans and stuff. And, and so he was, he, he was Mad Max for sure. He, he was one of those guys who was, uh, you know, could get angry very quickly. But the good news about, about Max is that he was on a team of guys who loved him and, were, and we were able to kind of guide him and keep him 
you know, keep him in between the ditches a little bit and, and really focus his, his energy in the right directions. And, uh, and so, you know, we would not have won without Mad Max and, uh, and, you know, the fact that, uh, that we built that, 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 uh, friendship that sort of like brothers that has lasted all these years. It's, uh, really, really meaningful to me. What uh, do you, do you have a memory or two of, because I'm sure there's, there's so many great stories that you could tell about experiences of playing with him. And, and as you said, he walked that fine line. Uh, what is there, is there one or two memories, Matt, you can share with, uh, without getting in trouble? Well, yeah, I mean, there is one that's, uh, you know, we were, we were playing in Seattle. Uh, I think it actually was in that 93 series. It wasn't the final game, but it was in that seven game series. We were playing in Seattle and it was halftime. And back in that, in that time, the locker room was about a quarter mile jog down this hallway to, to get to the, to get to the locker room. So at halftime, as we're walking off the floor and we're getting ready to jog back to the locker room for, for, you know, to rest during halftime, Vernon spit on the floor. He was, he was angry. And, and when he got angry, he would start spitting and he spit on the floor and Akeem, uh, you know, as a leader of our team sort of got in his face and he said, Max, stop spitting don't do that. That's not, you know, that's not the way you're supposed to act. And so through this quarter mile jog back to the locker room, those two guys started, started jaw, jawing at each other and, and, uh, and it escalated a little bit. And by the time we got back to the locker room, it was a full blown fight between those two. Thank goodness we had Otis Thorpe and another big uh, guy, Larry Smith, who, who his nickname was Mr. Mean. Uh, Mr. Mean was big and, and, uh, and strong and tough. And so it took those two guys to separate Akeem and Vernon in the, uh, in the locker room. And, and, you know, those are the types of things that you have to, you have to understand that when you're, when you have a guy like Mad Max, you got to be able to deal with those things because they're going to pop up at times. And, uh, and Akeem was trying to lead and Otis and Larry were able to calm the situ situation down. And, uh, but that's, that just shows you the, the fiery personality of Mad Max that he would get so angry and so upset at what was going on that he would actually, you know, fight his own teammates uh, just because he got angry, but the, but that's how we were able to use his passion and his abilities and his talent and sort of uh, sort of direct him in the right way so that he could he could be a very positive influence on our team on the floor. Well, if he can get Akeem Olajuwon to start throwing fists, he he must really be able to get to everybody because yeah, that would probably be the last guy on on that roster that I would expect to uh, to get involved in something like that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that just shows you everything right there. And so if, if Mad Max is willing to uh, go to blows with, with the dream, you know he was going to go to blows with Michael Jordan. And That's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's too bad we were deprived of, of We never got to see uh, see see uh, you guys against the Bulls in the finals. That's, I think, one of, would be one of the most intriguing matchups, certainly when you look at the two rosters from the teams at, the, at that particular point in time. Yeah, and, and actually Rudy T tells a story about how he, he – was having dinner with Michael Jordan and several other players later on uh, in the nineties. And, and uh, Michael Jordan had actually told Rudy T said, said, you know, the Rockets were the one team that we did not want to face. We did not feel like we could beat you guys and we didn't want to have to face you in the finals. And so that was a sort of a private admission that Michael had given to Rudy T, but that Rudy T now years later has, uh, has brought to light that, that this shows you that the Rockets were the team that uh, the Bulls did not want to face in the finals. That's interesting. That that part didn't make the final cut of the last dance, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think uh, you know the last dance was very was uh, you know it was great to watch for sure. It was great memories, and I was able to watch it with my with my kids who weren't born at the time, and so I was able to fill in their knowledge of of their dad as a basketball player. But uh, but Michael Jordan certainly had uh, you know he had the, he was the director of that uh, yeah. that uh, that deal, so he was not going to put the Rockets anywhere in that uh, in the last dance at all. Um, one other thing, uh, Matt, I want, or one other teammate I wanted to ask you about, Matt, is, uh, is Robert Horry. I think a lot of people don't even remember that a young Robert Horry was part of that team. This was before he became known as Big Shot Bob, uh, one of the all-time clutch playoff performers. What was his role like on that team? Because, like I say, this was kind of before I, I, he was still young and had really evolved into the guy that a lot of people remember from his years with, with the Lakers and, uh, and the Spurs as well. Well, Robert and I were actually traded in February of 1994. We were traded to the Detroit Pistons for Sean Elliott. And, uh, and that was, you know, 94 was when we won our first championship. But, but Robert was uh, a little, he was young. He, 
few, I think that might've been his second year and he was a little passive. You know, he didn't, he passed up open shots. He wasn't taking the open threes and, and Rudy would continue to tell him, say, Robert, shoot the ball. When you're open, I want you to shoot it. But I think Robert was sort of deferring to Akeem. Robert has since said that uh, Akeem was his favorite player and he was, uh, he was like, uh, you know, just in awe of being able to play on the same team as, as Akeem. And so when he was a young player, he was deferring to Akeem. And it ended up that they traded Robert and I to Detroit for Sean Elliott, uh, who they felt like would be a guy who would shoot the ball in those situations. Well, it turns out that Sean Elliott had a kidney problem and he failed his physical. And that trade was was rescinded. And Robert and I were sent back to Houston. So uh, we were both Pistons for three days. And we, you know, we weren't able to play in any games because the trade wasn't didn't wasn't finalized and didn't go through. And so when the trade fell through and we went back to Houston, both Robert and I were pretty salty, you know, about about being traded and having to come back. And Robert has said that he goes, you know what? If they traded me because I won't shoot the ball, then I'm going to shoot the ball. And so that was really the the moment in Robert's career where he, with the, the light switch flipped on for him, and he started shooting the ball. And that's when he became Big Shot Bob. He did not shy away from shooting the ball, and and, uh, and obviously now seven championships later, and all the huge shots that he hit in his career, uh, you know he had an amazing uh, career, and it all started right there when he almost got traded to Detroit, and because he wouldn't shoot the ball. You mentioned that, and understandably so, you were a bit salty when you guys came back to the Rockets. How was the team able to reconcile that situation? Well, Rudy, Rudy tried really hard to welcome us back, you know, and it, and I, you know, I was, I was upset. Uh, you know, Robert was upset. I, as you can imagine, you know, you get traded you feel like nobody, the team doesn't want you and you have to go back and perform for them. But, you know, Rudy tried really hard to welcome, welcome us back, but it was really the rest of the guys on the team. You know, it was Kenny and Vernon and, and, and Otis and Dream and, and Carl Herrera was on the team and they all welcomed us back and, and, uh, and we were able to put things behind us. And then, of course, obviously winning a championship at the end of that season made it all better. You know, uh, time heals all wounds, but championships does an even better job of healing wounds as well. And, and, uh, and so, you know, it was a crazy time, right? Uh, you know, we we're still kind of flailing about trying to figure out how we were going to fit in. And, uh, and then it all just sort of gelled. And, and, uh, and here we are. Well, something like that could really derail a team. And I mean, I was only a kid at the time. And of course, this was pre-internet uh, social media era. So, you know, all the all the, the back and forth and uh, the rumors and innu innuendo and speculation that would have blown up today, you guys didn't have to deal with that as you tried to, to you know, to repair or restore your relationship when you went back to the team. But I don't remember it ever being a really an issue that threatened to rock your boat. Yeah, you make a good point that, uh, you know, today's a lot different with social media and all that. And we didn't have that, you know, and, and so we didn't have to deal with the, uh, the instant uh, fan feedback or the instant, you know, whatever you, you find on social media. It was, certainly was a simpler time and, and we were able to just repair uh, with our teammates and with our coaches and it made it a lot easier for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I would, I wonder what would happen in today's era if, if a, a trade like that went down and then it was rescinded. You know, what would the social media blowback be? It would be probably pretty prolific. I, I, well, I, I have no doubt it would be, and it's uh, again just speaks to the, the unique uniqueness of that time. Um, and the, the fact, well, yourself, what was your, what were your emotions like, man? I mean, were that Pistons team was, that was not a good team. That was a team that wasn't even anywhere near the playoffs. Um, they were in full rebuild. That was, of course, the year before they drafted Grant Hill. So, I mean, uh, that was that was basically uh, about the year they bottomed out between the bad boys era and then when they started to get back to winning again later in the 90s. Um, was there a part of you that was happy to be going back to Houston? Well, so the Detroit Pistons at that time, that was the end of the bad boys era. Now, Isaiah Thomas was still there. Uh, Joe Dumars was still there, um, but they weren't, uh, they weren't the bad boys and they had, they had, you know, their expiration date had already passed and I, and, and their coach was Don Chaney and Don Chaney was my first coach in Houston. Don Chaney was, was coach of the year for the Houston Rockets in 1990. That was my first year. And so when I got to Detroit, Don Chaney sat me down in his, uh, in his office and he said, man, we're so great to have you, Bull. Here's the plays I'm going to run for you. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, you're going to be running plays for me? This is going to be great. 
Uh, and in fact, you know, I had just gotten married. My wife was from Detroit. Her whole family lived there. So I was looking forward to becoming a Piston. And Isaiah Thomas welcomed me to the team. Oh, we're so great to have you. Can't wait to bring your, your skills into what we're trying to do here. And we had a couple of really good practices. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the trade gets canceled. And I had to go and I had to come back to the Rockets. And, and uh, so I was, I was really messed up in my head. You know, like I was excited to be a Piston. And then I had to come back and be a Rocket and shift gears. And, and, and try to get over my anger a little bit. And it was, uh, I was a young guy. I was probably like 24, 25 years old. So um, it was, uh, it was a unique time for sure. And, uh, and, you know, uh, Don Chaney has a lot to do with my success in my career as well. as one of my first coaches. And then Don and I actually worked uh, on broadcasts uh, early in my broadcasting career. He, he would do pre and post game shows. So Don and I are still friends and, and what a great career he had. So, you know, just, it's just interesting to see when you look back on everything, uh, all the different connections you've made and all the different pathways and all the different uh, ways your paths have crossed paths with other uh, greats and everything. And, and uh, you know, now, and now you look back on the story and all the chapters that were written. Uh, they were hard when you were writing them, but now you look back and go, oh, that's a pretty good story. Uh, do, you, do you recall how yourself and uh, Robert Horry found out that the trade had been canceled? Or rescinded, well, we, I should say? Yeah, so we were, uh, the Pistons had a game that, uh, and we were, we showed up to the game. We were in the locker room putting on our uniforms to go out this there. This was going to be your out. debut with the Pistons. Yeah, going to be our debut with the Pistons. And, and we were, you know, putting on our uniforms. And, uh, and uh, Billy McKinney was the general manager. And he came up to us while we were putting on our stuff. And he said, hey, guys, uh, the trade's not finalized yet. You guys are going to have to, to put your street clothes back on and, and we're going to have you sit in the owner's suite uh, to watch this game tonight. And Robert and I are looking at each other like, what, you know, uh, why is the trade not gone through? And like you say, there was no social media. So we didn't know what was going on with Sean. Uh, we didn't know that he was having a kidney problem. And in fact, Sean Elliott had to have uh, uh, he had to have a kidney transplant in order to continue to, uh, to survive. And he ended up playing for quite a few years after that and had success in San Antonio. And Sean and I are friends as well now too. But, but I remember Robert and I are looking at each other like, hmm, this is, this is odd. And so we sat in the owner suite for that game and we're eating popcorn and drinking beer. And Vinny Johnson's uh, jersey was retired uh, at halftime of that game. So we got to see the microwaves jersey get hung in the rafters there in Detroit. And, uh, but it was odd. You know, we, we really didn't know what to expect. And then the next day, I think, is when they said, yeah, the trade's uh, been canceled and we're going to put you guys on the next flight back to Houston. So even during that game, you were thinking, okay, it's just a matter of paperwork or, or you know, a T needs to be crossed and I needs to be dotted. You, you still felt you were going to be part of the team. Yes. And, and what was interesting was uh, when, we, when Robert and I got to uh, Detroit, uh, you know, we had to go through a physical to, on our end. And uh, I went into the team doctor there in Detroit, and he goes, uh, goes hey, Matt, uh, welcome to Detroit. You, got any, you have any injuries or any, anything bothering you? I go, nope. And he goes, all right, you're good. And that was, and that was the whole physical, you know? And, uh, and so I think, I think Detroit knew that Sean did have the kidney problems and they were just trying to, you know, maybe offload him as quickly as they could without too much, uh, not too much fanfare. And, uh, and it ended up not working out, but, you know, Sean had to go back to Detroit. I actually talked to Sean about this uh, a long time later, a couple of years back. And he said he did not want to go back to Detroit. He wanted out of Detroit so badly that when the trade fell through, he almost, he almost retired at that point and his agent had to talk him out of retiring and going back to Detroit and finishing out the season and, and thank goodness that he did finish out because then Sean ended up going to San Antonio Spurs and winning championships with them and of course he's the TV broadcaster for the Spurs now and he's had a great long career so it's just interesting how close you get to uh, to catastrophe at times and then you know sometimes you just make a little little bit of an adjustment in your path and you end up being a being a world's champion. It, it sure is funny when you think about when you think about that the, the the path that Sean Elliott took as a result of that too is is it's really it's 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 just funny how how the world works. Matt, Matt were were you going to be number fifty with the Pistons too? Because I think I remember you wearing fifty with everybody you played for. Yes, uh, number fifty was the jersey that I was uh, given when I was a high school basketball player because back then you know the big men wore the big numbers, <laughs> and so I was the tallest guy on the team and I had fifty. So fifty was my number throughout the entire my entire career. And I actually do have my Detroit Pistons number 50 jerseys, home and away. Uh, I've got them packed up uh, in the attic, but I do, have, uh, I do have my Pistons jerseys, even though I never did play a game in those, in those jerseys.
Oh wow, that is that is very cool. Those are those are classic jerseys too. Those old Pistons jerseys. I think uh, that's uh, well, that that is. So you did get a souvenir from your time in 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 the Motor City. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and then another interesting thing is I do have a picture of when I was playing with the Atlanta Hawks in '95. Uh, Otis Thorpe, my former teammate with the Rockets, was playing for the Pistons at that time, and he was wearing number fifty for the Pistons a couple of years later after. Uh, you know, after he left the Rockets. And, and uh, so it's just, you know, just those weird things, those weird coincidences that uh, happen throughout life. So in the playoffs, you guys beat Portland 3-1 in the first round. Then you knocked off Phoenix, of course, in seven games. You won the conference finals against the Jazz, four games to one. And then here we go with the finals against the New York Knicks. The, the Knicks, of course, have been knocking on the door for years trying to get past the Bulls. And you guys were coming up in the West. And now someone was finally going to get their ring between these two teams. And this was a very back-and-forth series. Of course, went seven games, which is pretty rare in the NBA Finals. And I remember it being quite physical. Very physical. And, uh, and, and really, to me, it, it, uh, you know, it was Akeem Olajuwon against Patrick Ewing. And remember back in college, Patrick Ewing's Georgetown team had, had knocked off uh, Akeem's U of H team to win a national championship. So Akeem had... Uh, you know, he had a score to settle with, with Patrick Ewing, and those were the two best centers in the league at the time going, going against each other. And then, of course, we had Kenny Smith, who was from New York City. He wanted to beat his, his hometown team. And, and we had Otis Thorpe, who was a very, very strong player. But we were playing against, you know, like Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason and, and Charles Smith. And these guys are like, you know, some of the strongest guys to ever play in this league. And, and I just remember – in, the, in that series, you know, the banging that went on between Akeem and Patrick and, and Otis and Charles Oakley and myself and, and Anthony Mason. I mean, we're talking about a serious knockdown, drag out wrestling match, uh, you know, holding and grabbing and pushing and shoving and, and, and boxing out for rebounds. Anything, anything goes, you know, you know, now you, you hear everybody say, well, when, you know, when the, when the playoffs start, the game slows down, gets more physical. It, it's in, in today's game, it's not nearly as physical as it was back in the 90s. And, and I just remember playing against those guys, and especially in Madison Square Garden. You know, that's like the mecca of, of basketball. And the pressure that I felt on my shoulders when I was in that arena in the finals, uh, I've never felt anything like it before or since. And uh, just the weight of, of all of that on your shoulders while you're out there trying to play and, and play against these guys who are super physical and, and they know that they're stronger than you are and they're using that to their advantage. And uh, it was just the most competitive games that I've ever played in. And there's been nothing since that's even come close. And, and so, I, you know, just for the fact that uh, these big, huge, strong guys going at it and even the guards too, like we were talking about with Derek Harper and, and – uh, and those guys, uh, just John Starks as well. Yeah. And who who did uh, you have to match up uh, most frequently with in that series, Matt? Uh, Anthony Mason was a guy I had to guard a lot, and uh, and Charles Smith was the other guy uh, who who was out there a lot when I was out there. And uh, you know, when you're trying to guard Anthony Mason, was a unique player, and that he was about six eight, about two seventy five, super strong, but he could also handle the ball. You know, he was a he would bring the ball up the floor. He had a very good uh, handle on the ball, a good passer, um, you know, sort of maybe a little bit ahead of his time as far as being a skilled big man, but yet being so overpoweringly physical that it was, uh, it was really hard for me to just keep him out of wherever he wanted to go. He, he, was, just, he was just super strong. We are looking at live pictures of Interstate 5 in Los Angeles. We believe that that white vehicle, which is being trailed by a phalanx of California Highway Patrol cars and helicopters, belongs to Al Cowlings, who disappeared with O.J. Simpson earlier today. Shortly after Mr. Simpson was informed that he was going to be formally charged with the murder of his wife and the young man who was with her at the time. It is the latest bizarre development in a string of bizarre and shocking developments that have been going on all day long. Now the series is 2-2 after four games, and then you guys are probably part of the most famous date in sports history. So famous, in fact, they made a 30-for-30 uh, 30 30 about it, June 17th, 1994. Had the Rangers Stanley Cup parade on a Palmer's final round at the U.S. Open. The first day of the World Cup soccer in the United States. Ken Griffey Jr. set a home run record. 
And then, of course, Game 5 of the NBA Finals at the Mecca Madison Square Garden. And then it all culminated with the O.J. Simpson freeway chase that evening. And I remember as a kid watching the game on TV and NBC cut away to coverage of the chase. It just, just really surreal when you look back on it. How aware at the time, Matt, were you guys of everything that was going on? When you were in that game, did you know, was there much awareness of what else was going on in the world? Because as we were talking about, too, this is before the social media era and when, you know, all this information is at your fingertips. Yeah, it was, uh, it was weird. It was surreal, like you say. It, we were aware of it. That, you know, back then in the NBA, most arenas did not have, uh, like, big screens for replays. You know, you certainly weren't going to see any sort of TV monitor uh, around the bench areas or anything like that. But in that final series, there was a TV monitor that was on the floor all the way at the end of our bench. And, uh, and, and so we would actually look at that TV monitor to, to see replays you know, like if there was a big play or a foul call, we would look at that TV monitor to see what the replay showed. And, that, you know, it was unusual for us to be able to see a replay at that time. And, and then so the game's going on and we're playing. And, and then we look at that TV monitor to see a replay. And there's a white Bronco going down the, going down the freeway. And I, I'm, I looked at it and I was like, wait a second. Why is the TV broadcast in commercial while the game is going on? And then we look at it again and the Broncos. So, and we're like, that's not a TV commercial. What, what is that? And, and then you could kind of hear the murmur through the crowd and the crowd. I think uh, I, I heard later that a lot of the people went up to the concourse to watch the TV monitors up on the concourse to see the, the car chase. And so eventually the word did trickle down to us on the bench that that was OJ, you know, uh, in the, in the white Bronco trying to escape or whatever he was trying to do. And, and I actually got angry. Like I was like, uh, the NBA finals are way more important than, than watching this white Bronco go down the 405. I mean, why would they, why would they cut away from the most important game on TV? Uh, you know, my buddies are back home trying to watch me play in the finals and they can't watch me play. And so I was a little upset about it. And, uh, and it was very surreal. It was like, you know, like, just like, uh, you know, you would never, like if, if you were like a movie screenwriter and you wrote that into your screenplay the the editor was like get rid of that that's that doesn't make any sense you know and and so that's kind of the way we felt was you know we were a little bit upset that hey look we're trying to win this championship and who cares about what oj's doing you know we're trying to win and you should be putting us on tv well the knicks did win that game take the 3-2 series lead but you guys had the last two games coming back home in houston um, heading back now, that's that, that's a that's a fairly long uh, trip to New York to Houston. That ride back when you're down three two, but you know you've got games six and then hopefully seven on your own court. How was the team feeling at that point in time? Well, I remember Rudy framed it in the right way. He said, "All right, guys, this is what we've spent our entire season building is is having home court advantage for this moment right now. I know we're down three two, but we're going to have our next two games at the summit in front of our home fans." We, this is all the hard work we put into has brought us to this point, and we're going to capitalize on it. And so Rudy was able to give us the confidence that we needed to come back home. And I remember game six was a very close game. It was down to the wire. And Akeem actually had to block John Stark's three-point shot with uh, just the tip of his finger. He got a tip of his finger on that shot, John Stark shot to block it to, to seal the win for us in game six. And, uh, and once we won game six, coming back to game seven, I think all of us knew we were going to win it. We all knew that, we had, that it was our, our series to win. Uh, we were at home for game seven. And game seven wasn't quite as close. We had, a, we had a comfortable lead going down the stretch. And I think with a couple minutes left, we all, we all, we all knew, hey, we're going to win this. You know, we all started to get excited on the bench. Like, oh, we're going to be champions. And then everybody said, wait, wait, calm down. Don't jinx it. We still got two minutes left, you know. And, and so it was kind of like that uh, balancing act of trying not to get too excited, trying to still keep your head in the game, but knowing in the back of your mind, well, we're going to do it. We're going to win it. And, uh, man, when that final buzzer went off, uh, it's just elation. Uh, it's really hard to explain the feeling when, when you win a championship. Um, it doesn't feel like you think it will. You know, you, you don't really you, – it's not like uh, – you know, like the fans go crazy and they explode and they're yelling and screaming and cheering. But as a player, you don't really have that same feeling. It's, it's more like elation. It's uh, it's a little bit of uh, uh, like a sigh of, of relief, like all the hard work that went into it. Uh, and it's a little bit, it's a little bit surreal. You don't really know how to act. And so you're looking at some of your other teammates to, to figure out how to act. And, and I was looking at Akeem and Akeem was just very 
uh, very quiet uh, to himself. He wasn't running around crazy. He was, uh, he was just taking it all in. Uh, I remember Sam Cassell jumped up on the, uh, on the press table and was, he was screaming and yelling because he was a rookie. You know, he didn't know, he didn't know much uh, how to act. But, um, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where you don't really think about how am I going to act when I win a championship because you don't really, that's not really something you ever think about. And then all of a sudden it happens and then you're like, hmm, yeah, this is how it feels. Hey, who had on a member of your team were you most happy for, for, for winning a championship that year? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I, I don't think I've ever thought about who I was most happy for. Um, I think I was just happy for us as a group, you know, like all that we had been through the previous year when we got knocked off by the Seattle supersonics for Robert and I having to overcome getting traded for, for Rudy T to finally be validated as a, as a, as a coach. I know Rudy had chased championships as a, player and, and, and never got it done and and so for him to, to finally become a champion Akeem the same way you know Akeem had been to the finals in the mid 80s with uh, Ralph Sampson and wasn't able to get it done Akeem with U of H wasn't able to win uh, uh, NCAA championships so the fact that he was able to finally call himself a champion to me that felt like that was the right thing uh, for you know Akeem is a champion and now he finally really is so that's uh, to me, that felt like it was that made everything right in that situation. Um, I was happy for Robert. You know, Robert Ory had a, had a real good playoff series and, and validated the fact that uh, you know he came back, back to the team that traded him and and really and really uh, turned his career on. So, you know, uh, Vernon Maxwell too. You know, Vernon had been through so much, uh, not only in his career but in his life, and, the, and for him to be a champion really validated you know validated him and. And um, you know, just the chemistry that we had as a team, that we all were able to go through the, the, the trials by fire to come back against the Phoenix Suns in that second round and, and, uh, and, and build Clutch City. And uh, it really felt good to be on top of the world. And, uh, and it was all like a blur after that. After the final buzzer went off, we celebrated in the, in the arena for several hours. Uh, the locker room scene was was uh, was crazy, and and we spent a lot of time in the arena. And then you know several hours later, after the game, we went outside. We were actually supposed to go to a local restaurant to have like a a big celebration as a team. You know the restaurant had closed down; it was a private party, but we couldn't get there because all of the people in Houston had just parked their cars on the main street outside of the summit, and they were having a huge party out on Richmond Avenue, and it was. It was we couldn't you know we couldn't drive to the to the to the restaurant because traffic was not moving. Everybody was just outside hugging each other and celebrating and honking horns. And, and uh, you know I really remember the city of Houston how they celebrated that first championship. Uh, they they showed the world how to celebrate a championship. You know, there wasn't any looters. There wasn't any rioting. There wasn't you know no one set cars on fire. Everybody was just hugging each other and and, uh, and the entire city had come together to celebrate. Houston Rockets. And of course, that wasn't just the first championship for the Rockets. I believe that was the first major pro sports championship for the city of Houston. Yes. And we were aware of that. We, we were aware of uh, you know, the Houston Oilers uh, uh, blowing a chance a few years earlier. And the Houston Astros had not done it in a long, long time and, uh, or had never, had never won a championship. So we were aware that it was the first major championship in the city of Houston. And we were very proud of that fact. And, uh, you know, Houston. Houston is a, is, a, is a great city, but you would say that Texas is a, foot, is a football state, right? So, so when the Houston Rockets won the first championship in the city of Houston, we felt like we were able to take a football state, a football city maybe even, and turn it into a basketball city, and, and we were very proud of that fact. Here's Matt Bullard. Firing away from three, and that's what Matt Buller does so well. I'd like to close by asking what you feel the legacy of that team is. But but first, I think maybe to contextualize this, Matt, and you touched on this earlier, is is how that uh, is is how that team utilized uh, the three point shot as a weapon. And I think you are the perfect example of this because uh, I was looking at your stats that year. You, 70% of or almost 70% of your shot attempts in that 93-94 regular season were, were from uh, beyond the arc. And I mean, that's, uh, you see that stat now and you don't even think twice about it. But back then, for someone who was playing the four, 
that, that, that was just absolutely unheard of. It was unheard of for hardly anybody to be taken, whether you, you know, no matter what position you played, be taken that percentage of your shots from the outside and, 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 and you were doing it. Um, I touched on it earlier. I, I said, I thought this team was a little bit ahead of its time. And so, so now looking, looking back with uh, well, 26 years, I guess, what, what was the legacy of that team? And do you think what they did, what you did, uh, influenced what we see as embraced as the, you know, the, the, the prevailing philosophy in the NBA today? Absolutely. You know, and like you say, 70% of my shots were from three. And I remember Rudy T telling me, he said, look, if, you, if the ball is coming to you and you have a shot, shoot it. If you have to dribble it, don't dribble it. If you have to dribble it, I'm taking you out. You know, so if the ball is coming to you, you don't have a shot, then you just keep it moving. And that was, uh, you know, that was when the when, when we threw the ball inside to a team, that was our best play. And so we just read the defense on how they defended him. If they're going to defend him one on one, he was going to he's going to put up forty on you. And if they sent a double team, then he would kick it out, and we would find the open three point shot, and we would just keep moving that ball around until you know maybe it finally got to the corner. And the corner would have been the open, the open three. But, but Rudy directly told me, he says, if you dribble it, I'm taking you out. So, so my, my, uh, you know, my, uh, my role was pretty simple. My role was to space the floor. Uh, I was a good post entry passer into a team and then space the floor. And if I had an open shot, shoot it. And so Rudy made it very simple for me, uh, maximize my strengths, minimize my weaknesses. And, and I think now looking back on it, uh, now that the NBA has become a very three point heavy uh, league. And in fact, the Rockets are still on the cutting edge of, of, of shooting threes. Uh, Mike D'Antoni's team is taking half of their shots from, from the three-point line uh, that I think Rudy T was, uh, was the guy who started it all. To really, to really use the three-point shot as a weapon, to really put that in the other team's mind of, are we going to give up uh, Akeem Elijah one in the post, or are we going to give up three-point shots? And neither one of them is a good option. And uh, Rudy T was able to be ahead of his time and really sort of show the NBA the direction of, of, uh, of the way the game should go and what the, what the most efficient shots are. And I remember uh, Daryl Morey, the Rockets general manager, who is uh, you know, an analytics guy who really has shown where the best shots on the floor are mathematically. He actually, he actually ran some, uh, you know, some studies on, on our, our championship teams. And he, he did tell Rudy, he said, Rudy, even though you guys didn't have all these advanced analytics to analyze back in the day, you guys were playing the right way and you were taking the right shots. And so, you know, looking back on it uh, through the, through the uh, lens of analytics, uh, Rudy T really did have it right, even though we didn't have all the, uh, you know, all the computerized stats that they have now. So with that in mind, how do you think that that team would, perf- would, uh, would do in this era? That's a good question. I think I think the '94 Rockets team would be very competitive in today's in today's game. Now you know the the, the post up has gone away in the NBA. The post up's not a very efficient shot now that we know the we know the actual analytics on that. However, there are a few guys that are still very good in the post. Currently, Joel Embiid is the best post up player in the NBA, but Akeem Olajuwon is even better than Joel Embiid in the post. So I think the Dream would have a huge advantage in the post. Um, the way uh, the game is the, there's a lot more space in today's game, so I think Akeem would have more space to operate in the post. You certainly would have to double team him, and uh, and with all the great three point shooting now, I think uh, I think that '94 Rockets team would be very competitive in today's game. Well, unfortunately, we won't get a chance to ever see how that series would have played out. But at least we will. It sounds like we're going to get a chance to see some basketball here coming up uh, real soon, and I know you'll be uh, you're looking forward to that and. We'll be calling or we'll be on the broadcast for the Rockets games, I, I should say, when things do get going. Uh, Matt, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share some terrific memories uh, from, from your time and, and winning that championship in 94. Uh, it's always great to talk about the good old days. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And thanks to you, the listeners, for checking out the show, giving us a spin. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back to check out more episodes in the future. We're currently finalizing where you can visit the to listen to the 90s basketball show for now you can always find it at soundcloud.com slash the basketball show 1260 and you can follow me on twitter at brian swain for the latest updates before i wrap up i want to give a special thank you to paul sir from the basketball show for his support 
You can catch the latest editions of the Basketball Show, which are also available on SoundCloud. Well, that'll do it for me. You have been listening to the 90s Basketball Show. My name is Brian Swain, and I'm out.